This morning we are uh, continuing to walk through our series, The Gospel. And over the past couple weeks, Pastor Dustin has led us through the first two chapters where um, we've seen how the gospel transforms us, how it's supposed to uh, change our lives to some perspective, the way we live in this world. And as we, as we come to chapter 3 of John this morning, it's probably one of the most familiar passages, John 3.16, but the surrounding context and the conversation that Jesus is having with this man in this chapter is, uh, is a little confusing at times, just the language he's using. So, as we, as we look at chapter 3 today, I want to ask the question, how have you been changed by the gospel? And I want to also look at the question, what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born again? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 16 here. John chapter 3. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely you cannot enter the sec a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God, unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh give birth, gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the Son of Man, except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How has the gospel changed your life? And, and what does it mean to be born again? Um, now, like I said, because of the familiarity of this passage, John 3, it might be, again, a little more known to us. But again, I think we sometimes miss how odd this interaction is when we read it. Uh, we, miss, we miss the fact that Nicodemus, I mean, the Pharisee who, who was a person who knew the law front to back, God gave the Israelites a law to follow, and he memorized the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. He, he knew it front to back, but he approaches Jesus at night and, and says, we know that you are sent from God. We know that the power of God is in you because of these things that we're seeing. And then Jesus just cryptically replies, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus answers in, I think, the same way that most of us would if we were in that same conversation. What on earth are you talking about, Jesus? Born again? What does that even mean? What are you trying to say here? So for Nicodemus, it was, it was an impossibly odd concept to grasp, this fact that he was born again. But 
For us, we actually, we actually face the different trouble. We face the fact that born again to us, this kind of odd term has lost its meaning. It's become muddled down in our society. Uh, if, you, if you Google born again, uh, one of the first things that came up in my Google search was actually a company that was, it was a roofing company. They were born again roofing company. They just rebranded their logo and name. Uh, but they took on that meaning, this, this thing, born again, that once referred to this whole transformation process within a person where their character was changed, who they are is, is turned around, a radical repentance in their life. It's just become a byword in our culture. So what is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? Uh, later in the Gospel of John, Jesus is walking along and he passes by a blind man. This is actually one of the few instances where Jesus heals a man without him asking to be healed. He just passes by the blind man and chooses to heal him. And uh, because this blind man was well known in the community, the people would walk by their routes every day and see him there. Uh, they were wondering how he was healed. And so the Pharisees, again, this group who knew the law quite well, they called him in to question him. And as they're, as they're asking him, he argues with them for a little while and tells them it was Jesus who healed them. Uh, but eventually he gets thrown out of the synagogue because they're fed up with him. They won't tell him anything other than it was Jesus. And after a little while, after this, after this healing and after this man this, who was once blind con uh, talks with the Pharisees, uh, Jesus finds him and they have a conversation. And after recognizing he was the Messiah, here's what Jesus said. He said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him, a different group, heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Those who claim to see are somehow blind and guilty, and those who are blind are only able to see through Jesus because of him. You see, he was trying to help them understand that they were blind, that they couldn't see. In some regard, there was something blocking their vision that they weren't able to recognize because they weren't allowing Jesus to heal them in that. It wasn't a physical blindness like the man who Jesus had walked past. It was a spiritual blindness, an, an inability to recognize that Jesus was the true Savior. But you see, like I said, the Pharisees were a group known for obeying and teaching God's law. If there was if there was anyone who should not have had a blind spot, it would have been them. It would have been these people who, again, memorized most of the Bible they had at the time, which is insane. They knew the law the best, and they should have known who Jesus was. But when Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who comes from God because of all these amazing things that you do, he's still missing the reality of who Jesus is. It's an incredible thing right there, the fact that Nicodemus could see what Jesus was doing. He still knew him face-to-face -face even in a way and still missed the point. Because when we, we see that he didn't get the point because when, when Jesus replied, he didn't say, ah, oh, well, you understand, you see that I'm the Son of God. He doesn't say that. He says, you see that I am sent from God, but you still can't even comprehend who I am unless I help you see me, unless I help you see me unless you were born again. Now, Jesus didn't waste any time trying to convince Nicodemus that he was the Messiah. He didn't try to perform miracles in order to show him that he was who he said he was. He went straight to the heart of the matter. Nicodemus, 
You're blind. You can't see the truth of who I am unless I help you. And the reason you can't is because you still think you can see. So Nicodemus, he, he spent his whole life trying to understand the Old Testament. He, he memorized the Torah, like I said. He grew up in the temples and, and heard his elders teach him. He, uh, he grew up coming to Sunday morning service and attending Bible study, and he never swore. That was kind of the, the person he was. And yet he still missed the point. He had blind spots. Nicodemus came to Jesus at nighttime because he was afraid of what the other Pharisees might think of him. The, the people, the group that he was coming from, he was still worried about who he was in their eyes. He was still finding his identity in the group of the Pharisees. He was looking to something other than Jesus to find his identity. Now, all, all identity is, is, is a sense of self and a sense of worth. Our identity is what's made up of the things that we take worth in and the things that we find ourselves in. But being born again is about changing our identity. It's about changing who we are. Um, being born implies that you're welcomed into a family. Anyone who is born, whether it's a small family or a large family, you're welcomed into a family. Uh, and, and that's how identity is given. If you think about it like uh, a, a beggar's son, for instance, is treated differently than a prince, not because of who they are or what they've done, but because of the identity given to them from their parents, from their family. Uh, and and uh, as we're reading this, the context of John 1 should be in the back of our minds. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, but born of God. Nicodemus couldn't grasp who Jesus was because he still held on to his identity, the things in the world that gave him his view of his self and his worth. And in the same way, I think that we can hold on to things that claim to give us identity, but in reality, blind us to who Jesus created us to be. We can find our identity and work in, in doing a good job or in being successful enough, and that can get us by in life until you hit a bump in your work, your coworkers start treating you differently, or, or you get laid off, and your entire sense of self and your entire sense of worth is thrown out of balance. You can find your identity in, in romantic relationships where, where your worth comes from someone who admires you, thinks you're beautiful, or thinks that you're the best person on earth, but as soon as that they have a bad day or they say something negative, your sense of self and your sense of worth is gone. We can find our identity in so many different things, in our morality, in our ability to do good and feel good because of that. In, in our kids, as long as our kids are doing well enough, then we feel good enough about ourselves even. But it's only when we find our identity in Christ do we realize that these other realities aren't true. These other identities don't help us. They're a false mask of who God has made us to be. And right now, in the last couple of years, we've been living in a time where identities are being challenged. I'd like to say we're, we're, we're living in a world where people are being laid off work, being able to uh, not come to church for a season there, uh, for, for having less contact with other people. Life has been shifted. It's been a hard couple of years. And while these things are difficult and troubling, I think they're also God's way of getting our attention. I think they're 
his ways of helping us to realize that the blindness that we've been operating under is blindness so that we can find our true identity in him, that we can realize these things we've been turning to haven't been working. And you know what the, the most terrifying and relieving reality about this all is? Is that it's not up to us. We can't do anything about our identity, right? It's, it's something that's given. It's, it's something that's received, not achieved, our identity. We're blind. We can't even see how blind we are, in fact, sometimes, to, to realize the fact that we've been placing our sense of self and our sense of worth in the things of this world. But that's also good news. You see, after, after Nicodemus asks Jesus how on earth the second birth happens, Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. What's he trying to say here? He's saying, you're all worldly. You live in the world. And because of that, because you live in this fleshly world, you can only understand yourself in light of this world. You will find your meaning, your purpose, your identity in this world, because all you are is flesh. What's he saying here? Because Nicodemus isn't dumb. He, he, he understands what Jesus is saying. He knows that there's a transformation, that there's a redemption process that must happen in order for people to enter the kingdom of God, in order to enter the kingdom of God. But he thought he could earn it through following the law. I still think some days I can earn it through people pleasing. Some of you think your redemption comes from your ability to be moral where if you do enough good, then you feel good enough about yourself. Others think it comes from your ability to do a good job at work, and that's what gives you a sense of self and worth in this world. Nicodemus thought it could come through following the law, and we are stuck believing these things because we're in the world, because we're made of flesh. So how do we change? And that's what Nicodemus was asking. How do we then change? What's the point how do we do this? How can someone be born when they're old? How can we be spiritually transformed and changed when all we are is flesh? And in his reply to Nicodemus, Jesus used some odd, uses some oddly specific language. He says that you need to be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom. It's, it's a reference back to Ezekiel 36 where God is speaking to the Israelites and he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's not up to us. It's the work of God in us, giving us his spirit so that we can finally have love and peace and joy and identity in this flesh-broken world. That's the good news. That is the incredible good news of the gospel. But, are you seeing where the problem is here? That's great. Jesus does all the work, but still Nicodemus asks the question, how can this be? Right? Because how on earth does this happen? Because we look at the world around us and realize it's still broken. We look at even our own selves and we realize we're still broken in many ways. So how do we how do we recognize that God both does all the work and that it's still so messed up? I think it's because a lot of people in this world claim to be Christian, and I'm, 
I, I remember a few years ago, I was having a conversation with one of my high school friends, and it had been a while since we'd seen each other, so it was good catching up, but as we got talking, I just asked him a couple questions about faith and spirituality. I was like, hey, are you religious at all? Uh, do you have any type of faith? And he, he thought about it for a second, and he, he said to himself, he's like, well, I remember my, my grandparents were Christian. They were Protestants, and my parents, I guess, then would be Christian, which I guess that would make me a Christian. Um, now, I'm not, I'm not blaming him for his understanding of, of Christianity, because that's what he's been taught. But to many people, it's, it's simply a legacy. It's simply a characteristic of my history rather than a present reality that changes the way I live in this world now. Going to church every Sunday won't save you. Reading your Bible won't save you. Shoveling your neighbor's walk won't save you. So what does? And that's what Nicodemus asks. If it's a spiritual reality, God does all the work, then what is our role? How does that happen? And this is, I think, one of the most beautiful parts of the gospel. Jesus answers his question, and again, the typical Jesus confusing terms, cryptic answer, and he says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, me, Jesus is saying. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What's Jesus saying here? Back in uh, Numbers chapter 21, Moses was, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, they're wandering through the desert for 40 years, and they come to a place where uh, the, the Israelites start complaining again. If you've read through the Old Testament, they constantly complain a lot like we do. But uh, they, they ran out of water in the desert, which is a fair thing to complain about. Uh, they were getting angry that the only food they had to eat was manna, this kind of wafer consistency food that they'd wake up to every morning. And they were grumbling against God. And so God sent venomous snakes in order to teach them a lesson. It's in the Bible. It's a crazy story. Now, uh, what, what do I mean by teach them a lesson? How does, that, how does venomous snakes help teach a lesson? What's the point of that? Well, you see, when, you're, when they were bitten by these venomous snakes, it was, it was a poison that would react quite quickly in your system, we'd imagine. Um, but regardless of how it worked, a lot of people died through this, and your body would slowly succumb to it, and you were soon just bedridden, you'd have a high fever, and then you'd eventually just pass away if you weren't helped. Uh, which is why after the Israelites saw that their actions were wrong, and they'd repented of them, God asked Moses to make this image of a snake, and he makes this bronze uh, snake up on a staff, and anyone who would look to that image would then be healed. It, it wasn't, God didn't give Moses like this concoction. He didn't say, grab a bunch of these leaves and grab some of this dirt, mix it in with some water, and, and pass it around to the Israelites to drink it. Uh, he, he didn't say, you need to come to the altar, and you need to rub your hand on it, and then you'll be saved. They were dying they were bedridden. They were laying on the ground about to die. They couldn't go to the altar. They couldn't even pass around a concoction. What were they able to do? They could look. It was a salvation through looking. And that is the key. God was trying to help the Israelites understand that if they kept their eyes on him, that there wouldn't be a problem, that they would have all that they needed. There was no reason to complain. A salvation through looking. This is what Jesus was referring to when he, when he responds to Nicodemus' question about how anyone can be saved. Jesus says, all you have to do is look at me. 
That's all you have to do to be saved. Isaiah 45, 22. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. All we have to do to be saved is look at Jesus. So how do we do that? Or, or rather, what, is it, what does it look like to have our eyes on Jesus and not on other things? Uh, it's kind of like a story I've heard from a lot of different pastors and ministry leaders. Um, it goes something like this, where they get someone coming to their church that's new, or their organization, ministry, whatever it is, and as they attend for a little while, uh, they go up to the, the pastor or the ministry leader and they say, you know what, I, I grew up in church and I, I'd heard the Bible read a hundred times, but it feels like this is the first time I'm hearing the gospel. And usually it's, ah, my old church was crap or whatever it was. And that's uh, another problem to work through. But it's, it's unlikely that from the many times I've heard this different story that all of these people came from a church that didn't preach the gospel. It's unlikely that that's the case. But it's something rather like this that that something they were once blind to, they now see. Something in, in the reality of the gospel that they were once hidden from being able to understand, they now click. The light's turned on. They understand. It's like the success they looked for in work or, or in morality or in relationships finally paled in comparison to the love God has for them. Or, or maybe another way to put it, have you guys ever... Have you, have you ever tried to, to watch something on a screen while listening to something else that's different at the same time? You, you're always, always, always going to watch the video. The video will win 100 times uh, or 100% of the time as opposed to the audio because whatever's, ever, whatever's up on the screen catches your attention first. Uh, that's, this is why I don't meet up with people if they want to have a conversation at Canadian Brewhouse. It's floor-to-ceiling TVs. I cannot focus. It's, it's, they have incredible boneless wings, but too many TVs. <laughs> My focus is on something else, though, and that's what happens. It's, it's the same for us. When we have conversations, it's much easier to focus on the visual than what's being said. And for, for the people in the story who, who came and said to these pastors, these ministry leaders, you know, this is the first time I've heard the gospel. It, again, it wasn't that. It was more that something finally made a click. They, they changed God from just being audio to video. It was more clear to them. Now, for us, we have different things in our lives that might be on video. We have different things that might be taking our attention away from what God might be trying to speak to us. It might be our ability to be good moral people, to go to church, find fulfillment in a relationship, or being successful in your career, or being nice enough to other people. But that's not what it means to be born again. It's only when we look to Jesus and when he becomes more real to our hearts than the things that we once found our identity in. That's what it means to be born again. To have a new identity, not because we tried hard enough, not because we worked our way there, but because we look to Jesus. That's what brings change. And that's what brought change in Nicodemus's life. It's a pretty hopeless interaction in John chapter 3 between Nicodemus and Jesus. By the end of it, it's nothing else on Nicodemus. But when you get to the end of the gospel, after Jesus' body was taken down from the cross, we read that uh, it was a man named Joseph of Arimathea who came and uh, asked Pilate for his body. And in the gospel of John, it tells us that there was another man with him, Nicodemus, who came and asked for his lifeless body. The man who first met Jesus under the cover of night, 
so the Pharisees wouldn't disown him, now comes with, it says, 75 pounds of spices and, and things in order to cure the body. And he asks for his body in broad daylight in front of Pilate. Can you see the radical change in this man's life? He forsook his pride and his standing. He, the, the things he cared most for in life paled in comparison to even the dead Savior that was in his arms. He was finally born again. He was able to see the things that he couldn't see back in, in this interaction with Jesus here. He finally had that click moment where he understood it. It was the kingdom of God in truth, not masked under his own morality or his own ability to accomplish it in and of himself, not sought after for status or standing, but understood in the context of being completely and utterly unable to do anything about it, except for look. He let go of his dignity to find deliverance. And once his, he was delivered, his dignity was restored to him and his identity in Jesus. Change only came when he looked at Jesus. So, my question is, what are you looking at today? What gives you a sense of self and a sense of worth in this world? My, my prayer and my hope is that Jesus would help each one of us this week to see, to recognize, to uncover our blind spots, to let go of our dignity in the ways that we need to, that we hold on too strongly to, and then receive deliverance. I want to close with this story. Back in... 1856, there was a terrible snowstorm in London, and um, as one man was on his way to Sunday service, the, the blizzard was so bad, in fact, that he couldn't make it to his usual church. And so as he rounded his uh, corner, he came to uh, what he called a little primitive Methodist church. And so as he, as he enters into this building, uh, there's about a dozen or so unfamiliar people. He'd never been there before. And as he sits down, he realizes that even the pastor couldn't make it there that morning, so they were kind of waiting for someone to preach. And eventually, after a little while, a thin-looking man uh, who uh, he thought was either a tailor or a shoemaker, he got up and, and he says that he wasn't very good at preaching since he pronounced many of the words wrong, but he started preaching on Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. This is back in 1856. The KJV was their standard. Uh, and he went on to say this, the preacher did, no looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it, it's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look, even a child. And then the preacher went on to say this, look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging from the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend into heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me, you have nothing to do but to look and live. And so as the preacher continued to speak, the man sitting there said that he didn't notice much what else the preacher was saying because he was fixed on this one thought. And this, this man was uh, Charles Spurgeon, the, the famous uh, preacher from the 1800s. And here's what he wrote about that night. Here's the words that he said right after. I've been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. 
I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. You need do nothing except to look at Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've made a way that not only that, you are the way. We thank you that we can find our truth and our life and our identity in you. Father, we recognize that as we're stuck in this world, we become blind. We miss a lot of the things that you've come to shed light on. And so we just ask that, God, as we are living in darkness, that we would hold on to the light of you, that we would look to you, God. That as this week, as we go through our jobs, as we go through our relationships, as we go through the school and work that we face, whatever it might be, help us not to be distracted. Help us to keep our eyes set on you, God, and to know you more. Thank you for this great love that only requires us to look at you, Father. Pray these things in your name. Amen.